0: This episode is sponsored by SH Building Group. The experienced team of professionals at SH Built consists of client, site, accounting, subcontractor, design, and craft building specialists. They integrate the latest construction management technology and offer home guardianship services and advanced inspections. Tom Sherlock and his team helped remodel my home, and their attention to detail was unsurpassed. Start planning a project today. Visit shbuilt.com or call 970-923-1122 and tell them you heard about them on Selling the Mountains. Hello, and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Christian Knapp. This is Selling the Mountains, a show about the booming mountain town real estate economy and unique personalities fueling it. Each episode is an insider's perspective on market trends, lifestyle, success stories, and the ups and downs of homeownership in the mountains.
1: Christian Knapp is the former Chief Marketing Officer of Aspen Skiing Company and a lifelong mountain town enthusiast. He is an accomplished marketing and sales leader who has worked for the top resorts in North America, including Aspen, Bale, Breckenridge, and Keystone. Currently Christian is an independent consultant and principal at Moment of Truth, a boutique marketing firm specializing in brand development, strategic planning, and digital execution. All opinions expressed by Christian and podcast guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of the companies or clients they represent. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for real estate investment decisions.
0: My guest today is Andrew Erneman. In 2020, Andrew was the number one broker in Aspen and the top performing agent for Sotheby's International in the world. The Realtrend's annual rankings list, the thousand, just named Andrew the number four broker in the United States out of 1.4 million licensed realtors. Accolades aside, Andrew's unique position that sets him apart is about having great data and the ability to provide information to his clients and colleagues that cannot be found anywhere else or in a format they haven't seen before. He is a trusted real estate advisor to his clients and friends. And in the season finale of Selling the Mountains, Andrew's point of view and super successful approach to the business of real estate comes through with precision and clarity. In our conversation, we discussed current trends heard on season one, driving the mountain real estate economy. We dove into topics like the sustained demand and continued decline in inventory to the psychological permission sellers now have to list their properties of intrinsically high value given the new high watermark has been set. We covered the pocket listing phenomenon and public IPOs of local brokerage firms. Lastly, we talked about marketing trends, mentorship, partnerships, and the keys to long-term success that any broker should adhere to when entering the business or sustaining a presence in a market like Aspen. I hope you enjoy this great conversation with Andrew. This episode is brought to you by Obermeyer Wood Investment Council, an independent investment advisory and financial planning firm based in Aspen and Denver, with roots dating back to 1982. Their team of experienced investors thoughtful financial advisors, and focused problem solvers have helped hundreds of individuals, families, and nonprofits identify and achieve goals using sound advice, careful planning, and clear communication. They are locally-based experts, dedicated community members, and proud sponsors of Selling the Mountains. Obermeyer Wood would like to offer all listeners a complimentary, no-pressure investment portfolio review with one of their experienced team members. To schedule a review or to learn more about their services, visit obermeyerwood.com.
1: when we just psychologically hit the reset button and said let's see what 2021 brings when i spoke with you back in february the year was young and it felt like we still had good demand in the market from buyers we knew that uh, listing inventory was low at the time but we were in that time period where aspen is a very seasonal market in many ways not just for tourism but but particularly for real estate and we tend to see a lot of the activity concentrated for showings in the latter part of February and into March, and then the same again in July and August during the summer months. And those showings usually then lead to more deals and more contracts getting written. And and this year has been no exception so far, except it, it just feels like the activity has bled through the off season, which typically by April and May, we just don't see a lot of showings. We don't see a lot of deals happening. And this year, for sure, it it was an off season in that there were fewer people in town than there were uh, during February, and March, but more than I'm used to seeing for our quote unquote off season and more showings that I'm used to seeing that time of year and definitely more contracts being written. I was working on my my monthly email newsletter this morning and just blowing my mind, really, how little is available for sale right now relative to the number of properties under contract and and what's sold and still buyers looking at our market. So fast forward from February to today, really the the thing that stands out the most is just this sustained demand and continued decline in inventory and it makes you wonder at what point do do those trends hit a roadblock or stall out or or start to go the other direction and they just haven't yet.
0: Are you starting to see an acceleration of listings, or is it holding steady at just
1: minimal listings? So normally, coming into the summer months, we'll see an acceleration of listings. We'll see more people come on the market late May into late June, and that's typically because in Aspen, the the market really gets going around July fourth, and then through July and August. Snowmass Village is is pretty similar. Snowmass Village tends to have more of the sales activity in the winter than the summer. And, and that's been historically true for a long time. Aspen used to be the same way, and it flip-flopped uh, several years back to where the summer's busier than the winter now. And so we've seen both in Snowmass and Aspen new listings come on, but I'd say not quite the same flood that we're used to seeing this time of year. Uh, still a strong number coming on, but properties going under contract at the same pace, basically, as they're coming on or even a little faster. So. Uh, it hasn't, the the seasonal nature of listings coming on the market hasn't increased the inventory yet. Uh, and and I, I don't know, last summer we saw more and more listings come on in July and August than we typically would. I think as people realized that the market was really going, they got off the sidelines and came on the market. That may happen again this summer. I mean, really all of this, all these little micro trends have, have upended our typical seasonal rotation and our seasonality in our real estate market. And, and it's made it, harder to predict what's going to happen in terms of inventory and listings and under contract and when people are here and when people are looking so it's it's kind of resetting the rules for us speaking of predictions in your last newsletter
0: you predicted the possible first sale of a home north of 50 million to come to pass and lo and behold it did and a property on willoughby way closed uh, a few weeks back for a record setting 72 and a half million dollars highest uh, sale that the aspen market has ever seen i think or, or in recent times anyways you made that prediction it came true what can you tell us about that
1: yeah wow i mean big number and Back to what I was saying about resetting when you start the year, one of the things when we came into this year, I just, I always like to take stock of what happened the prior year, what are the trends I'm seeing? And and mostly, what are the things that people don't think about as often when we're talking Aspen, Snowmass real estate? That's just been something for me throughout my real estate career here of, of trying to not necessarily think out of the box as much as just think differently, think about things that people aren't talking about as much and one of the things coming into this year that i i said i think originally back in january and then as as you pointed out in my last monthly newsletter was i i felt like this would be the year where we'd see our first ever 50 million plus sale and i and i said that because there have been only a handful actually fewer than a handful of sales in the 40 to 50 million range ever in aspen for residential real estate commercials a little bit different because you have hotels and, and bigger properties but for homes and ranches, parcels of land, the record is just under 50 million. And and like I said, there's only been, I think it's four total sales in that 40 to 50 range ever. But based on what was happening in the market, I could just tell there was more and more available money for people to spend, to borrow, to invest in Aspen real estate, more people looking at Aspen real estate as a great asset and and not always being as analytical about price per square foot or coming at it with the financial rigor we've seen in the past, much more emotional trades happening. And also couple that with some good appreciation in the market over the past several years and, and more properties uh, being listed in the... In the 40s, in the 50s, and several off-market properties uh, in the 50-plus, and even a couple in the 100-plus million range. It just felt like to me now would be the time. And I think the other thing I added into the into the mix there was seeing markets like parts of Los Angeles, uh, South Florida, the Hamptons. As Manhattan cooled down, the Hamptons really heated up, and and certainly other markets around the world where properties were trading kind of more regularly for 60, 80 million, even a hundred plus in a few cases. And the people buying those properties, many of them spend time in Aspen or resorts like Aspen. And it just occurred to me that those people are coming from a different mindset where spending 60 or 80 or hundred million dollars on a property uh, may, may still be a, an enormous purchase or a big decision to make, but it's happening. And in, because it hadn't happened here, I felt like actually the the market for these higher end sales had been maybe a little repressed because psychologically just we'd never hit that fifty mark. So now, fast forward to just last week, this $72.5 million sale blew through the record by about 50%. So the sale was almost on the nose, 50% higher than than the highest sale we had ever had, which it's not like, hey, somebody came in and paid 51 or 52. They they came in and just blew it out of the water and And, by the way, the buyer took no efforts to conceal their identity. and it's been written up in the wall street journal and and uh, and very public. So, in a way, it felt like they wanted to announce that they had bought this property. and And that, to me, says there will be a psychological shift in our market that basically that sale gives permission to, Other sellers or potential sellers to list their properties that may be intrinsically, incredibly valuable and and beautiful and other buyers to not feel like they're the first one stepping out onto the stage or, or doing something that's out of bounds and i won't be surprised if we see a couple more sales this year now uh, north of 50 million and i guess the next milestone is really 100 million which will be interesting to see when that happens i i know that there are a a couple of properties that should absolutely trade for more than 100 million dollars just based on what they have or what they are if and when the time is right and the right buyers out there wow these numbers are just you know just floor me but uh, you, you have to take a step back and just you know, appreciate the, the the show that we get to participate in or watch or just be a part of here in terms of you're right, Christian. The numbers are astounding. And you go to ninety nine point nine percent of the rest of the world to other markets. And and it's, it's like you're talking a foreign language. People just don't understand it. And, and you have to you know, ground yourself with that.
0: You know, to that end, another thing that just came out recently was the 2021 Real Trends Tom Ferry, the thousand list. And this is an industry list for brokers that, um, you know, basically hones in on the 0.07% of the top brokers in the country based on total sales. And you were the highest um, broker listed in the Aspen area at number four, which is a huge kudos to you and, and your success. I'm curious who the three were ahead of you. And, you know, what, what is this
1: list about and is it important? Ah, uh, good question. I'll start there with, is it important? I think it's important to people who care about rankings, which is not me, ironically. I think it's people, I'm competitive, don't get me wrong, I, I, I love to win and I love to be very competitive, but I, I never have set out in this business to try and get on a list or be a certain number on a list. But there are people out there that that's important to personally, It just gives them validation or self recognition. And I appreciate that. I think that's great. I think it's important from, to, to be fair, if you're in the business and you're on the list, it's, it's a nice feather and an almost marketing pitch to be able to put out to clients, potential clients to your sphere in whatever way you feel appropriate, because it definitely can give a, a level of credibility that especially potentially new clients or or people who who know you but don't necessarily know you know what you're doing in terms of sales or how successful you might be uh it's it's a way to quantify that and put that in front of people when i got into this business a little over 12 years ago being a a realtor in aspen i i remember at the time uh occasionally seeing the rankings just locally for aspen real estate professionals and, and thinking you know that'd be pretty neat to be top ten on that list someday if i if I could uh, do enough sales to to just be in the mix of of really having succeeded and and made it here as as a realtor. But it was never really an express goal. and so to to have this year where uh, I ended up, like you said, number one in aspen and and then I found out number one for all of sotheby's international realty in the world to be the top performing agent globally for sotheby's was really special and that's not something that they publish or or put accolades out but when i had the the chief marketing officer for sotheby's international realty call me and deliver that news uh i don't know two months ago or a month ago that was that was pretty pretty neat to hear that because again i didn't set out for it but it happened and then on this list uh who are the three people ahead of me so to be ranked fourth out of a million plus realtors in the entire United States is, is still mind-boggling for me. And I'll put it this way. My, my kids asked about it because my wife brought it up at dinner when, when the list came out. And we usually have dinner together. The four of us are two boys and my wife sitting together. And the boys were saying, well, dad, I mean, who's who's number one, two, and three? And in fairness, number one and two, number one is homes.com, the owner of homes.com. And number two is a similar type. I forget what the the website or the real estate businesses, but they sell thousands and thousands of homes through their internet business every year, which is a little different model than just being an individual broker in Aspen, Colorado. But they get on the list because of the way their business is structured. The list is really meant to be individual brokers, not companies, uh, but the way they're structured, they, they absolutely are on the list. So I kind of look at those two and say, well, that's a different different program. And then ironically, the third person Uh, is what I understand a, a, a realtor in Florida and very strong performer every year. But what I told my boys was I said, you know, guys, if you take away the first two and then the third, I actually had some unpublished sales that I didn't go on that list. If they were able to be published because of confidentiality clause, then I'd actually be number one if you look at it that way. And that made my boys super happy. So I think of it as, the way they look at it, hey, our dad's the number one guy in the country and the world for Sotheby's, so that's great. That was last year. We can you know celebrate that and be happy about it. I'm not aiming for anywhere on that list this year or anytime in the future, but it's cool to be able to look at it and have that be a part of my my career, I guess.
0: The really cool thing, I mean, obviously Aspen market helps, right? In terms of the dollar volume that's being sold, just the the price per square foot of the homes here um, definitely propels people, but. Um, nine brokers or broker partners have been featured on season one of selling the mountains and have had an episode. So that was really cool f- to see. And that we were able to attract that level of talent in our local market here to be part of the show in, in the first year. So thank you for, um, being part of it and, uh, c- good luck and, uh, continued success there.
1: Thank you. And, and, and absolutely. I mean, you make a great point. If you look at that list, three of the top 10. 10- volume producing dollar volume producing uh, agents in the entire country last year came out of aspen and that that just tells you not how great we are because look there are a a lot of incredible real estate agents out there and a lot who will never show up on the dollar volume list because they're just in a market where the dollars aren't there that shows you the power of the aspen real estate market on on a national and really a global scale the dollars that flowed in here last year and I don't think that's ever been the case where three of the top ten and probably not even three of the top twenty or thirty have been on that list. I think you have to go a little deeper typically to see Aspen, even though Aspen shows up typically pretty well on the list it's It's just amazing, okay. I want to take this
0: next section to really dive back into some of the highlights that we've heard throughout the first season of the show and um we've got some we're gonna have some sound clips from some of the guests that have been on the show, and some you probably know really well. And some you may just be acquaintances with, but, um, the first question, you know, and the first statement, I want to really talk about the bubble, right? And there's a, there's obviously a looming question that's like, are we at the, on the precipice of a bubble? You know, we just heard about a record sale here in the Aspen market price per square foot's approaching the highest it's ever been. So I'd love for you to listen to this quote. This is from Tracy Eggleston, part of Tracy and Bubba Eggleston team. And, um, and she had some predictions about the bubble. I think what we're seeing right now is sellers wanting to take advantage of what could be perceived as the height of the market. I mean, nobody really knows. And I think that we are seeing an influx of listings coming on. Some of them are at prices, setting um, new records at price per square foot or price points in a certain area. And I think that in my experience, over I've been here over 25 years, and there's always a bubble.
1: I love Tracy. She's so in the market and knows what's going on. That a couple things that she pointed out there that I, I find interesting. One is when you break this down, we're absolutely in the in the type of market right now, and I say type because this this happens as part of. I think really every real estate cycle, or probably almost every real estate cycle, you get to a point where each new listing that comes on the market is priced at a premium to the last sale or couple of sales. So a seller sees what they think is a comparable home or property to theirs, whether that's because it's in the same neighborhood or price point or style or whatever it is. And and they say to themselves, and then eventually to their, their realtor, well, my house is better than that one or the market's going up so we should be priced higher than that or whatever there's there's different reasons or rationale and we're rich in sellers that are proud of their properties in Aspen so it's not unusual to have properties priced uh, at a premium to the market but when you're in this kind of environment you see these these pro- each new listing come on and feel feel like whoa, the market's really, really going. It's really are we at that point at that price per foot or at that price point or whatever it is? And and that's true. That's absolutely happening right now. And then with regard to her comment about the bubble, it's just so hard. And, and I really hate, uh, frankly, people talking about a bubble in any way or another, because what, what does that ultimately mean? I, I guess most people talk about a bubble in the context of something that's going to pop and. In Aspen, and I think most of the US, people look back at the the Great Recession and, and definitely say, well, there was a real estate bubble at the time because prices went down in Aspen significantly down uh, for maybe the first time ever. I mean, that there were years where maybe they would dip a little here and there over time, but never a, a precipitous drop like we saw then over two or three years. and And I think you could call that a bubble. When we've had other periods of time where prices have gone up quite a bit over several years, and then the market took a bit of a pause, and like I said, maybe prices dipped a couple percentage points before resuming an upward trend. I don't know if I would call that a bubble, and I don't know what we're in right now. I can tell you what we talked about earlier with regard to just record low supply. It's hard to think the market would just all of a sudden burst as a a bubble would and we'd see things just change overnight where they shift downward and prices start really dropping. But I'll also give the corollary to that, which is we saw last year a perfectly fine functioning, upward trending, mature real estate market come to a screeching halt overnight when the COVID lockdown happened and the ski area shut down, no new contracts effectively being written for a couple of months and several contracts falling out during that time. So the market could turn on a dime. And just like it did then after that shutdown, it didn't happen overnight. But over the course of several weeks, the market just completely accelerated out of that and, and went as strong as we've ever had it. So, our market can shift very fastly. I don't want to rule that out by any means. Uh, it doesn't feel like we're in an environment where we'll just wake up one day and prices are going to, to just start dropping dramatically. But prices have gone up in the neighborhood of 20-ish percent over the last year. And prior to that, they were going up on a more sustainable or what I think a sustainable pace of 5%, 6 7% a year on average for the, the prior five, six, seven years. When I see prices jump like they have the last year, it starts to uh, put up my antenna to say, are we in an environment where we need to be more cautious about what could happen in the coming months or the coming year? And the last you know, quote unquote bubble before the recession, it was three straight years of 20% plus gains before the bubble burst. So we certainly aren't in that environment yet. But I think it's fair to I think it's fair to, to ask the question. And I do think Tracy's answer of always in a bubble. I mean, Aspen is a is a bubble market in terms of we live under a dome, basically a little bit different rules apply here and people buy here for different reasons. A lot of that is completely discretionary because they're buying homes that they don't need to have that's really a second third fourth fifth home or just purely investment or whatever it is so it just tends to behave a little differently a market like ours than a more typical uh like metro market where it's really driven by a need for a place to live whether that's rentals or sales so maybe this is the new bottom of the market <laughs> do you think that's good question it actually felt like coming through the end of last year and and into this year, it felt like our bottom was not price driven, but activity driven last year when everything just shut down. And at that point, it was interesting. The conversation was going the other way when things were shut down. Will we see prices start to drop because there's just zero demand? And I think the the easiest answer, obviously, in hindsight, was no, we didn't have any change in pricing at all during that time. Maybe coming out of the the COVID lockdown when the first several contracts were written, I, I think it's absolutely fair to say there were some buyers who, in hindsight, got great deals, if you want to call it that, because there were some sellers that were just shaken by what they had been through and nervous what was going to happen ahead. So they were OK getting out of the market, maybe for less than they would have accepted previously. But it didn't happen enough to where The average prices or or pricing in our market really shifted significantly. And and to to your point about having a new bottom, there have been times in the Aspen market where you see the activity kind of pause or slow down, whether that's because it's an election year or there's been some major shift in the financial markets and people just decide to pull back and be a little more cautious. And I can point to that happened in 2016, where just out of the blue, we had kind of this this real slowdown for about six or seven months in the market. And there were a couple articles nationally written about the sky was falling in Aspen real estate and all these things. And, and prices didn't go down during that time at all. It just the activity just kind of evaporated for a bit. So it's possible that what happened last year was shutting down the market really allowed what felt like a market that was getting towards the mature end of an upward cycle just to hit the reset button and we've started all over again. It's definitely possible. It'll be interesting to see the next couple of years, how sustained and sustainable our current environment is.
0: This episode is brought to you by One Snowmass Residence Club, located in the heart of the new Snowmass Base Village. This limited collection of Ski and Scout residences lets you choose any ownership plan that fits your family's lifestyle. With two, three, and four-bedroom options available, you can select the size that makes sense for you and how much time you want to spend in Snowmass. Customize the perfect ownership with guaranteed use at specific times of the year, plus unlimited use of three additional types of long- or short-term reservations. And the revolutionary exit strategy allows you and the other owners in your shared residence to voluntarily sell the unit as whole ownership and distribute the proceeds proportionally. An online reservations portal, housekeeping, and concierge services plus resort-style amenities means smarter mountain living. To learn more, visit snowmassresidenceclub.com Okay, moving on to the next trend, the pocket listing, the off-market listing. You mentioned this in your last newsletter as well. I know you've had some off-market sales. There's been some incredible off-market sales, a $40 million transaction recently. My guest on the February 16th episode of the show was Brittany Rockhill, and she predicted this trend uh, spot on.
1: Yeah, no, I I completely agree. This is 2021 is going to be the year of off-market sales and digging. I mean, I'm I'm actively doing that. I have some things under contract that aren't even in the MLS right now. You know, always looking for things for for clients.
0: So Brittany is a true go-getter she actually talked about uh, finding a unicorn in a haystack for her clients which made me laugh you know what's your take on that trend is it here to stay and uh, what does it mean for the broker community
1: so uh in terms of trend i'd say i I don't know that it's a trend as much as it's always been a part of our market we've always had sellers who when i say always as long as i can remember we've had sellers who want to sell, but don't necessarily want everybody else to know that they are sellers. And sometimes that's because it's a high profile seller or a higher profile location that they have their property or whatever they have going on in their lives. That that part of our market has just been there and and I think will continue to be there. What's a little different and and maybe is more of a, a trend, if you will, is different reasons why people are, are off market. And aside from the typical seller who says, typical off market seller, who says, I'm, I'm going to sign a listing agreement. I have my agent representing me and out there trying to find me a buyer. I'm just not in the MLS or advertising or publicly out there that that's fine. We'll always have that. But the I guess the trend that I would comment on is more of a, a a part of our market that a couple of years ago I started really digging into and seeing, which is buyers love to find something that's not out there publicly listed. And I think this really shifted when Zillow and Trulia and Realtor.com became more prominent four, five, six years ago and listings became so publicly accessible for everyone. Cause remember it used to be way back when the MLS was in a book and people had to go get find a realtor that had the book they could flip through. And then it all went online. But when it went online, the the, the MLS and the, the local companies really controlled the listings. And it wasn't as easy always for a buyer to go find all the listings out there. And then the Zillows of the world really flattened that landscape. And all of a sudden everything that was available for sale, that was publicly listed was was out there for everyone. And buyers as a realtor, when when you're working with a buyer, that changed the game for us where buyers are calling and emailing and showing up here and saying, here's my list. Here are the four properties I want to go see. Or here's this, this one I've already identified. Or let's go see the, these properties that they've already researched and they already know in some cases more than you as the realtor might know because you haven't focused on that particular property. And the buyers have all this public information at their fingertips and they like to do it they like to dig in whether it's on their phone or their ipad or their computer before they ever even get here but it's, it's become a little bit of a sport almost for a lot of people and and so now what's my value add as a realtor and just like Brittany was talking about and i don't know how you hide a unicorn in a haystack but if you can show up creating value for your clients, which is what I focus on every day, think about job one is how do I create value today? One of those things is finding listings that aren't otherwise available. And so I actually pitch oftentimes to sellers or potential sellers a strategy where we may start off market or we may plan on being off market all the time because now all of a sudden, the buyers are out there hunting for you as the seller, hunting for your property. And they're excited when they find something off market versus the traditional model where a seller goes on the market and you're hunting for buyers. And sometimes not in a market like now where it's the dynamics are just everyday transactions happening, but sometimes that's that's a harder dynamic in our market. Sometimes so it can take sellers two, three, four, five years here, believe it or not, for certain properties and locations to find their buyer. But if you're off-market and a buyer can still find you, it just feels a little more coveted and special. Does it make your job easier or harder when you have an off-market listing? I think it makes it harder, uh, and I say that because you still have the same goal. Find the buyer as soon as possible who will pay the most amount of money for the property so representing a seller i think it's definitely harder because you don't get to just click all the different buttons and blast the property out to the world and know that everybody and anybody who wants to find that particular property or a property like that that fits certain criteria that they can easily do that so now the task becomes how do you find that buyer for this particular property. And and there are actually certain rules for off-market properties that were put into place last year by the National Association of Realtors who really trying to discourage off-market listings for a lot of reasons, but mainly for markets, not really like Aspen, more metropolitan markets where competition and, and fair competition and making sure sellers are represented appropriately is important to the National Association. So it makes it hard. You you have to be creative about who you're reaching out to, when, how, how to keep this still a special offering, but, but at the same time reach as many people as appropriate or you think are out there. And on the flip side, representing buyers, it's hard because you can't just rely on clicking into the MLS. You've got to keep a running tab of, what do you know that's out there it could be available or is available at what price is it listed meaning that there's a commission to be paid if if your client buys it or not and how do you if it's not you know how do you track it down so it definitely makes uh, i think realtors work harder to to find those matches if they want to and that's that's a big differentiator now where there are plenty of people out there who will just take a client and enter it in the MLS or take a buyer and just show them what they can see in the MLS but for realtors who are willing to take the time and the focus and understand the changing dynamic, especially in the Aspen market, and really dig and find and try to sell properties off market, it's it's more work for sure.
0: Speaking of you know blasting out and, and using marketing tools and leveraging your broker network, uh, one of my guests, um, you probably know pretty well, Stephen Shane, uh, Compass Broker. He came on the show on April 14th, right after Compass was um, was IPO'd on the New York Stock Exchange. Here's what he had to say. And when I saw the co-founding CEOs of Compass and what their vision was, I determined that if I was going to make a change, I didn't want to do it with the status quo and this was a company that was going to disrupt a otherwise somewhat antiquated industry in the respect that there has been no change in the brokerage for years there's a lot to discuss there i think there's a couple key things you know compass is now publicly traded and and is a fast-growing company and they've Gone into mountain markets like Aspen and Vale, and they're expanding into others. And you know they are promising a, a more technologically savvy digital approach to the brokerage. And, you know, I thought also it was pretty interesting how he said, it, you know, the industry was sort of status quo or antiquated in some respects. I'd love you to comment on that and sort of how you think this publicly traded brokerage uh, trend is going to unfold, and and sort of how does how do you position it as a Sotheby's agent?
1: Sure. So first of all, uh, I'm I'm happy for Stephen and and Compass to go public, and certainly hope for everybody at that company that whatever the uh, ups and downs of going public, the pros and the cons, that it leads to success for all of them. I'm a believer in the rising tide lifts all boats. And regardless of Compass and Steven personally, or anybody being competitors, I also view it as one of the neat things of our industry is real estate brokers have to cooperate. We have to work with each other all the time. and And you have to forget about company lines or personal lines, because it's very often you have two different real estate agents involved in one transaction. And in Aspen, even though we now have over 800 licensed realtors, which just blows my mind, you you run into the same group, the same top tier, very regularly doing transactions. So the the things I'll say next, I, I want to be clear in the context of uh, I only wish success for, for my competitors, in, including Steven. The reality is compass in my opinion has been built from day one to do exactly what they did to create value by going public and make a ton of money for the founders but there's nothing and and i i mean it nothing disruptive about compass as a business model in terms of how they list properties how they help buyers find properties there's nothing on their uh platform if you will of how they use technology or the internet or different tools that we all don't have access to and we all don't use i mean let's let's be real we are in a digital world now where everybody has access to incredible tools incredible information it's not like compass has some magic proprietary software that nobody else has that that enables them to do business better or sell properties for more money and when they came into the aspen market you know, just like they have done and it's been well-documented in many news articles out there, uh, grossly overpay and invest for existing real estate brokerage firms and existing real estate agents with the thought of continuing to build their machine and build their bottom line, which is still losing a ton of money to this day. And frankly, my opinion, th- this part is is my opinion, my opinion is their their structure and their model is unsustainable from a business profitability standpoint on Uh, on certain individual brokerages that they buy. Maybe collectively, they've got some that, that do really well for them. But over time, they can't offer the splits they offer to lure people away and the signing bonuses and then not have what they want the world to believe, which is a bigger, better mousetrap and a whole new way to do business, because that just doesn't exist. The reality is, particularly in a mountain resort, highly specialized high-dollar market like the Aspen area, the opportunity for people to buy and sell real estate is not on some digital platform. It's the institutional knowledge that great real estate attorneys have here, contractors, land planners, title companies, real estate agents to the degree they, they can bring value to the transaction. There's just so much water law zoning. There's so many things here that you can't plug into a software model that uh, Zillow can't report about, that Compass can't possibly somehow magically solve for, that there's a value to having the right people and players involved in those transactions. And while uh, the Aspen branch of Compass has some great agents, Steven being one of them, it's it's no different from what Sotheby's is doing every day, blocking and tackling. And the reason why I'm at Sotheby's is Frankly, it's just the biggest network with, in my opinion, the most recognizable name in the world. And when it comes to buying and selling real estate for clients, doing what I do as as a business, it's the referral network. It's your connections and it's the recognition of your name. When I walk in for a new listing appointment, I don't have to explain what this name Sotheby's means. People know and. And by the way, Compass has done a great job of building that brand name across the U.S., not internationally yet, but across the U.S. So people recognize, oh, it's Compass and whatever their thoughts are that they've they've been sold on the digital platform or it's just a recognizable name or it brings credibility. Just like Coldwell Banker and uh, some of the other firms out there, it's the same kind of thing. And, And everybody's got their own thought of where they're a fit, their culture, et cetera. And that's why it's great to have competition. It's great to have other companies and other choices. And by the way, it's great for our clients too, because the last thing you want is one company and a client feeling like they just, that's all they could choose. I think it causes all of us to keep our our pencil sharp and and keep working hard to be the best in our market. But make no mistake, there's, there's just nothing unique or special about how they've entered our market or, or do anything in our market.
0: All right, Andrew. So. In uh, one of the earlier episodes as well, I had your colleague on Chris Klug and Chris is a phenom, as we all know, he's an Olympian, he's an incredible athlete and he's, he's super competitive, you know, and he has come into this market really strong. You know, he's a, he's a relatively new broker still, but has, has seen tremendous success and has really adopted all things digital, right? He's got a ton of emphasis on his social media channels and video production and has really leveraged his his PR skills his marketing skills from his former life so here's a quote from him
1: I think maybe some of the things that I do differently is is certainly rely on my uh, my social media channels and and platform which is the most expansive in the uh, in the local brokerage community a lot of uh, emphasis on video I think doing lots of interviews and lots of broadcast experience over my 20 year career really helped me and I'm relatively comfortable in front of the camera and so i really brought that into my real estate career and thought how can we make um, these properties and and telling these stories more interactive and and more fun
0: so as a marketer i can really appreciate what he's saying there you know i'm a huge believer in social media to build your brand and keep your awareness out there i'm I'm a big believer in storytelling and And I think it's an interesting analogy to tell a story about a property and do that through a visual way with the latest drones techniques and, you know, beautiful videos and music. And maybe it's even a TikTok these days, who knows. But, um, you know, Chris has one approach and then you and Craig Morris and some of your colleagues have a very different approach where you really don't spend as much energy on your social media presence and rely on your your really incredibly strong networks and partnerships and just re- that referral in your e-newsletters uh, to really drive those sales for you. Can you comment on that?
1: You're absolutely right, Christian. And uh, I'm a huge fan of Chris Klug and it's been so cool to see from a professional standpoint, but also just from a friendship standpoint, see his business just blossom and flourish over the last couple of years. And to know, honestly, that a huge part of that is exactly what he was just talking about, his dedication to social media and video and how he markets his properties, but also himself. And and I'd say himself because that's what I think really neat about our particular profession is there's no rule book. There's no one way. There's no one path to success. And when you reference back to that that list of the top realtors in the in the US, I'd say more likely than not, every year, if you looked at that list, most of the top performing realtors have some heavy web and, and perhaps social media presence as well, but not all of them. And and so there are different ways to do it. The the one thing that I think is a common thread throughout our our industry, if you will, is your network and your referrals is the most important thing for generating new business and sustainable long-term business at a high level. If you aren't really able to to generate business through your existing and past clients and your sphere, and you're relying on just random internet leads or people finding you on social media or calling off an ad, you'll get the one off buyer here and there and the one off seller here and there. And by the way, if it's a one off and it's a five or 10 or even a $20 million listing or sale, that's, that's real money. And so you certainly can have some success, but I'm talking about year in and year out really producing and and seeing things happen. There's the commonality of the referrals ongoing, but unlike Chris, I, have a facebook account i don't think i've logged into it for several years and i know you're you're going to start cringing and just cringe even more as i go through this as a as a marketer and knowing how valuable that can be i've never logged into instagram i think i had a twitter account when i first got into real estate cuz i thought oh i need to do that but I haven't visited that for over 10 years last year i spent 0 dollars on print advertising for myself certainly have my properties in print, but I personally just don't see a real value in, in print advertising anymore, even for listings or properties. I think it really benefits the broker or the individual companies more than anything. And I think Chris's point about video is spot on. I've definitely focused where I have focused a lot of my energy and efforts over the last several years have been on. Uh, 3D and virtual reality tours of properties so people can see those properties from all over the world. Uh, great web site, web presence, information about listings, not just photos uh, and 3D tours, video for sure. Having the ability, it's almost like a deal room when I list a property that people can go on a website and find a survey, any inspection reports, details about the property, assessor records, anything and everything we can cook up that somebody might want while they're under contract. We try to have that ready. I try to have that ready on the the listing details or listing website for for each property. So from that standpoint, I, I, I look at it and I say, it's just a matter of who you're trying to reach and how you're trying to reach out to them. And Chris is a great example of social media, reaching a ton of people. I mean, you pretty much, if you had never met Chris, you could know, I think everything or close to everything about him, if you spend some time on on his social media platforms, which is really cool for him and I'm sure generates a lot of business. I have just no interest and frankly haven't devoted time on that side of it. So yes, I rely on a monthly email newsletter that goes out to a ton of people and gets responses every month in one way or the other of generating business, my existing and past clients as referrals And that's hard to do when you're early in the business because you don't have a lot of existing or past clients to rely on. But over the years, as you build that up, my niche has always been great market data and and objective information about the market, not being a subjective salesperson, being an advisor, being somebody who provides information like our clients are used to getting from their financial advisors, from their legal advisors, their estate planning advisors. I just look at me as another peg in their, their wheel of, being a real estate advisor and that has served me really well so it's it just goes to show you for sure there's so many different ways to skin the cat in in the aspen market
0: kind of to finish up that thought so if if uh there's a young broker listening to the show today what's your advice to them if they're trying to break into the aspen market
1: find your niche and as i had a a call with many of the brokers at our company recently when I say niche, I also quickly say I I don't love the word niche, but I use it because people recognize it and understand in their mind intuitively. I think that means a a segment or a portion or an area of the market. But in real estate, it can mean a geographic area, a price point. It could be one condo complex. It could be rentals versus sales or or commercial, Uh, but whatever that is. Find it and and just go at it 110 miles an hour. There's no on or off switch in this business. You're on 24 seven, 365, whether you like it or not, if you're committed and if you're showing up every day. Because as soon as you're off, you lose your clients and they go somewhere else. Or if they can't reach you when something is urgent or a new listing just comes on and you're not available, you can forget it. So find find that that world that's, that's yours. Where you want to focus and for me when i was starting out in the business i just looked at the landscape and at the time there was 500 plus realtors in the aspen area now we're at 800 plus and i just said how can i compete with 500 people who are already doing this there's only so much of the pie to go around and my determination at the time was you know what i have a background in business and manipulating data in microsoft excel and in other formats that allows me to hopefully have a leg up on the mass vast majority or at least differentiate myself from the mass vast majority excuse me of my competitors where i can show up and and provide information that people aren't seeing elsewhere or in the format that i'm providing in other places and so for me that was my niche starting out and that led to news articles about my market reports which led to public speaking engagements about the market which led to more press coverage and more people paying attention and then clients and it snowballs from there so for anybody in this business whether they've been in for a day a week or 10 years if they don't have that specific skill or area or or focus that they feel differentiates them it's hard to get any real traction.
0: I think that's great advice, um, and definitely you know something to take to heart. And there's so many, and as I've done the show, uh, there's just so many ways to approach this business, and and finding that niche is is really critical for sure. In fact, um, you know another another phenomenon we're seeing, and uh, well, a lot lately here in the market is pairing up. And uh, you know, you've got husband and wife teams like Tracy and Bubba Eggleston you've got um kind of young you know just more tenured brokers pairing up with a younger broker to kind of offer that both sides of it and in the case of uh leah and walker moriarty you've got a mother-son combo teaming up to offer different perspectives so i had them on on june 9th and they had some interesting things to say about how they integrate with their clients lives that's what we do that's what we do what makes it work you know honestly every day it's how do i get my kids into summer camp how do i find
1: a private chef how do i you know how to and honestly the a lot of the fun part is sharing with
0: buyers and sellers things like how to take
1: your used things to the thrift store because it all goes back into the education system right we don't throw things out furniture and And they love that.
0: So Leah and Walker are really an interesting dynamic, right? You've got a mother who's been doing real estate here in the Valley for 35 years. And you've got Walker moving back here from New York City, kind of bringing his perspective, digital marketing, big city perspective to things. And they're pairing up to get out there in the community. But I think Leah's point there about, you know, going the extra mile for her clients and really becoming part of their lives is something a lot of brokers probably deal with on a day in day out basis. Do you, you know, how do you approach that and how do you find balance when, you know, there's demands at all times and where do you draw the line?
1: It's a a great question. I was ironically uh, just with Leah about an hour and a half ago and celebrating a little bit with her, just talking to her about having her son now working with her and, and how cool that is and how great they're doing. And, you know, Leah is just a gem, not just in our profession, but in our community. Uh, one of a kind. And if you take from the last question you ask a, in the part about find your niche, Leah's somebody who has been very successful as a realtor uh, in our community for a long time. And her niche, from my perspective, she would probably say it much differently because she may look at it differently. From my perspective, her niche is is being her and giving herself to her clients and the community. It's not market reports or being really sharp at writing contracts or knowing all the ins and outs of water law and zoning she knows a lot about all those things but her niche is exactly what you heard in that clip and i think from a standpoint of being able to to differentiate one another in this business the the thing that you can take with you forever and and will always come back to you in a positive way is treating your clients and your friends like gold and sharing with them everything that you can along the way to help them. And so when you find somebody like Leah who who does that, it just keeps boomeranging back to her. And I look at that and say, there's there's so many great facets there. Your point about teams or or pairs of brokers joining together. What a powerful thing. I've I've done that with different people over the years in different ways. And aside from just the the great logistical benefits of you've got somebody to lean on, you can actually go on vacation and not leave your clients in the lurch and not be tethered to your phone nonstop if you have that that partner or that teammate covering for you. F- forget that for a minute, the lifestyle part of it, and really just look at the benefits of, in some cases, like you said, more tenured and younger brokers what they learn from each other, because a lot of times it's not just being passed down from the older to the newer, it's back and forth in terms of what what they're bringing to the table, but also complementing each other and having duos where one is really good at one part of the business and the other rounds out the team with the other part of the business. That Those things are really valuable as well. So all of that uh, comes back to what I've known and said to myself and repeated, especially during some, some tougher times when things don't go as well as you want, or people don't agree with your viewpoint, whether that's at a company level or at a deal level or whatever it is, all of this points back to the client. At the end of the day, it just matters what the client wants needs and where they need to get to. And if you lose sight of that and you're in it for yourself or for the money, or because you just want to get the deal done. Ultimately you might get that deal done. You might get that commission. You might get the personal accolade. And that goes back to why for me, it's just never been a goal to to be somewhere on a list in terms of ranking is it's really about making sure that somebody is able to sell their property successfully or buy a property successfully or do both or whatever it is. And the only way to do that is to absolutely put their interests first. And that can be a hard thing sometimes for people to recognize that it's not about your own opinion or what you think should happen here or what you like or don't like about a particular property or whatever it is. It's about what the client likes and doesn't like or what they want and need or don't want. And sometimes that may be counter to what your opinion or your thought is. And so your job then is to take something against your thought or your opinion. And figure out how to make it happen and how to how to make it happen in a good way and and that's hard sometimes
0: i think those are great points and you know i know top brokers like yourself have teams behind you right and you know and you've got i'm sure you've got a couple staff people helping you with a lot of different stuff so i'm curious how you know an individual broker that's just you know everything to do with the client 100 through everything doing the showings and all versus a broker like yourself that has a team, what are you outsourcing and where do you draw the line and how do you maintain those direct relationships with your important clients?
1: You know, it's it's like everything else. There's no black and white, it's just fluid. So I definitely have the benefit of great support, not just my my real estate team, but family, friends, everything. And I think we all need that in, in different ways, no matter what we're doing. I take the approach... I'd say compared to Leah, for example, who is, I think, very personal in her approach with her business and her clients. Uh, And that's, I think, a really neat way to do it. For me, I kind of bifurcate a little bit more where some of my clients have become friends and, and some of my clients, certainly we have ongoing, more regular interactions and relationships. But a lot of them, I look at it as it, this is my job, it, it's a business where I am trying to help you get to where you want to be or go where you want to go. And and it's nothing more than that. And if something grows more out of that because of our rapport, or our relationship or what we go through, then that's a nice side benefit. But for me, I, I really look at it in more of a pragmatic way, if you will, that when I put the real estate hat on and and somebody calls me, and it's a client or a potential client or or just whoever it is, or we're meeting or we're looking at property or we're dealing with a contract. I'm really just trying to, again, go back to that advisor role and not so much of uh, what I'd say is a little more touchy feely or personal on the, on the relationship side of it. Speaking of the advisor role, the next guest I want to dive
0: into and have you comment on was a, a gentleman named Theo Williams. And he works for Slifer, Smith and Frampton, and he's new to the market. He's an up and coming broker. He's actually from England and he's black. And so, you know, it's just kind of an interesting dynamic. He came on episode five and we had a really, really interesting conversation about sort of the challenges of becoming a broker in a market like Aspen. He actually moved here not not that long ago to be a soccer coach and found his way into real estate and is trying to differentiate himself You know, but you know, comes in with an accent, and 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 he's not uh, doesn't look like the typical broker around here. So that probably gives him a leg up, but it's also a challenge for him being new. And so I'd love to hear what he had to say. It's unquestionably the most important part of it is having a mentor. If you don't have a good mentor, you're completely lost. There's so many things that go on behind the scenes that you have no idea about. Um, It's not in the textbooks. They don't tell you hey, it's, it's not just contracts all the time. You are gonna have to find ways to put yourself in certain places. You need to ask questions quite a lot. And there's a lot of fear when you get involved. So having someone that you can run ideas to back and forth, for me, has been huge. Couple interesting things there, right? Mentorship is key. So I'd love your comments on how you approach mentorship to younger brokers. And also the fear comment, you know, I mean, this this is an intimidating market, and getting into that is, got to have a little bit of trepidation at times.
1: Sure. So uh, let's go reverse there. The fear getting into the market, uh, I think, is warranted and healthy. So many people just look at. The aspen real estate market or other markets and say uh, from the outside looking in there's just so much money there and real estate brokers just make so much money and and the commissions are so high and the reality is on on many of our sales that's true there's a lot of a lot of commission dollars at stake and, and on the table but to get to the point for most people and again this goes back to Being sustainable, being able to have a successful business year in, year out, not just one good transaction, which anybody with a license can can pull off under the right circumstances or the right person or people, whatever it is. But to, to be sustainable at it, it takes a lot. You need to you need to know a lot. You need to know a lot of people and you need to put all the pieces together. One of the things that I point back to is there's that that saying generally that it takes 10,000 hours to gain mastery or become an expert at something. And when you break that down, that's five years of 40 hour typical 40 hour work week. So it takes five years to master a skill or do something real estate and in particular in Aspen where it's it's not uncommon especially for a newer uh, realtor into the scene to do only a handful of transactions in a year if that because there's there's higher dollars, there's lower transaction, number of transactions happening, and there's a lot of people to split it up. If you're in a in a, in a bigger, more like city or, or bigger market, there's thousands of transactions all the time and you can dive in and, and just be exposed to lots of smaller transactions here. I would argue it can take more than that five years for mastering to become an expert because it's not so much about your time in the business, it's actually doing the business. And if you're only writing a few contracts a year or involved in a few transactions a year, like is the case for many people starting out, it can take a lot longer than a couple or five years to get 50, 60, 100 transactions under your belt and and really start to see, patterns materialize in terms of types of issues that come up, types of clients, types of situations, and and recognize that even then there's still new things on almost every deal or with every personality or person. So for somebody like Theo getting into the business, a mentor for sure is a critical piece, but I'd say even more critical than having a mentor is the recognition that you've just got to keep going and doing and finding ways to actually participate and not be on the sidelines and so transfer that over to the other part of your question of how do i look at that in terms of being a mentor that's been for me probably the most gratifying part of my business the last year to 18 months as i said earlier The way i approach my clients is maybe a more black and white pragmatic approach and not as much focused on necessarily relationship building of course i want to build the relationship enough where i'll i'll be referred business in the future but i i really look at that as if i do a a great job for this person whether they identify personally with me or not shouldn't matter as much as they'll want want to do business with me again or they'll want their friends to do business with me but from a personal connection standpoint, to be where I am in the business and have as much under my belt and still a lot more to to learn for sure and and experiences to happen and deals to do, I've got a, a critical mass that I I felt like over the last year or so I could start sharing with younger up and coming or even just struggling brokers who have been in the business a long time. So once a month, I host a roughly hour long, Call, which started out in person pre-COVID, and we'll probably go back to in person at some point, but for the time being, it's been a call with anywhere from 30 to 100-ish brokers from our office, from Aston Sotheby's. And I've got a different theme every month, and I'll talk about negotiating one month or listing presentations another month or all different facets of the business and just share things that I've learned and, and tools and ideas and philosophies. Uh, Yesterday for the first time I started a new thing that I'll be doing at our company which is uh, quote-unquote office hours where I just sent an email blast out to the company and I said to all of our we've got roughly 175 Realtors in our company and I just said anybody who wants to show up for the next hour and a half let's shoot the breeze about the market talk about contract issues whatever I'm here for you I want to be helpful in whatever way I can so finding ways for me to get involved uh, and, and you know, I guess a way give back some of the things I've learned or if there's value for other people. Great. And and I try to do it in a way where I don't pretend like I have all the answers or I know everything or or that I'm, uh, you know, the expert on all this. But I do look at it like there are people like you heard from Theo that are just looking for somebody to tell them how certain things work, but they don't always know who to ask or they don't know how to ask. And so if I can just serve that up to people and each person who participates in one of my sessions gets just one nugget out of it, uh, then I looked at it as a huge positive. And by the way, that's that's a big reason why I was excited to come back on your podcast was just knowing the audience that you've built. And for me, less about being on here to build my business and more about just knowing that there's an opportunity for other realtors, for clients, prospective clients of mine to maybe just take away a nugget that sticks with them. That's really important to me.
0: So Andrew, this has been incredibly fascinating uh absolutely can't thank you enough for coming back on the show and and helping finish up the season it's been an it's been a really incredible ride to learn from so many different brokers and developers and community members about this fascinating market here in Aspen and further afield in other mountain towns as well do you have any final thoughts for listeners of the show
1: uh, thank you again for having me christian and it occurred to me through the the months that you've been doing this when you first pitched the idea and, and asked me to join your first podcast. And you told me that you had decided to title it, Selling the Mountains. I, I've always loved that title. And of course you being a great marketer, I think just hit the nail on the head because that can mean so many different things. But I I kind of look at that and say, we're literally selling part of our mountains, this, this beautiful place we live and it's interesting to see where that line is drawn between what's public land or accessible land to the public and, and not owned by any one person versus the properties here that in some cases literally are mountains. There was a sale last year that was the majority of Shadow Mountain at the base of Aspen Mountain that sold. There are properties that are you know significant chunks of red mountain or other mountains here just just amazing when you think about what we see and get involved in and the properties that are created here and and traded here and then for you to layer on top of that the personalities that are involved in it on a daily basis and and do it in a really i think fun way and and pull back the curtain in the way that people haven't seen it's it's very cool so thank you again for having me
0: well, thank you. And it was very intentional, the name of, you know, it certainly could have been called Selling Aspen or a particular mountain town, but I wanted to have a nod to be um, bigger than Aspen, right? You know, Aspen's obviously been the focus of season one for the most part. We've dabbled it. We did do an episode from Telluride and one from Breckenridge as well, but you know, the mountains is where we live. The mountains is what we're all here for and why we came originally. And, you know, and selling is an interesting, it's an interesting word, you know, because no one can truly own the mountains. But that's not the sentiment here. And it's really becoming part of these communities and finding your way into these communities or maybe buying a place in these communities so you can spend a lifetime here. But what I wanted to do is really, help expose sort of what's going on in this marketplace, What's what people should be thinking about as they endeavor to buy or sell property in the mountains, and, and what are those trends that are going to dictate um, the rest of 21 and into 22 coming off of an incredible pandemic-fueled uh, boom in the mountains. So thank you for your time. Thank you for being part of the show. And we look forward to uh, season number two coming up some point in time. Thank you for listening to the season finale of Selling the Mountains. We couldn't have done it without you, our listenership. Your feedback, loyalty, encouragement, and most importantly, time spent listening is what made the show such a success. Also a huge thank you to each and every guest that participated throughout season one. You were incredibly generous with your time, expertise, marketing support, and overall perspective on the pandemic-fueled mountain real estate boom. Bringing your stories to life and providing insight was essential to creating the compelling narrative that got the show off the ground. This incredible journey would not have been possible without our supporting sponsors, SH Built, The Romero Group, Aspen Snowmass Sotheby's International Realty, Obermeyer Wood Investment Council, Land Title, Vector Bank, Colorado, Basalt River Park, One Snowmass Residence Club, and Bowdoin Homes. These companies are the best at what they do in their respective categories and are making a difference in their clients' lives each and every day. Lastly, I want to thank Dustin H. James from Podborder, my audio editor and producer, who helped make the show sound so great and pushed me to make each subsequent episode better than the one prior. You'll never miss an episode of Selling the Mountains if you follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your listening platform of choice. If you liked what you heard, please leave a short review and share it with a friend. Sign up for the free Selling the Mountains newsletter to get exclusive content, episode recaps, sponsor offers, and more. Visit www.sellingthemountains.com. You can follow the show on Instagram or Facebook at Selling the Mountains. Selling the Mountains is a production of Moment of Truth, LLC, all rights reserved.